Good morning, Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. It's Tuesday, and you are watching AM to DM. Here's a tweet from the Los Angeles Times. Lori Loughlin and her husband plead not guilty in college admissions scandal. It wasn't me. It wasn't her. It wasn't, it wasn't me. It wasn't him. <laughs> the old it wasn't me defense. Oh, now, you love too. this story. I do. I just find it so fascinating. It's, a, it's, a, it's just an interesting look at how wealthy people use power mm -hmm. and perceive responsibility, mm. you know, for their actions, you know, because we're just really getting to see slowly but surely how they think through what they did. It was really interesting. I feel With like a preponderance it was, of evidence. It was like last week, mm. it felt a little bit like at first, like especially going way back, she's like signing autographs, yeah. smiling at the crowd, right. shaking the prosecutor's hands. Mm -hmm. Then it seemed like she was starting to understand just how much trouble she might be in. Right, and maybe, and I feel like a lot of that plot point came from that E! News story that was like, she's remorseful and, you know, is she? I don't know. What's and then just like this whole like I'm I'm just not doing it. It's very it's very interesting. Well, it's suspect. It's suspect. All right, but we do have an important tweet from Yashar. I asked a prominent criminal defense attorney what the play is here. Quote, it's standard to plead not guilty when you are arraigned on new charges. They will negotiate a plea, but she's got to be in a place where she can accept responsibility. She I mean, definitely has to be in that place. Sure, that makes sense. But I, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, maybe she still does know she's in trouble. Yeah. This is just like a it thing. Just, to me, this whole story just continues. It's like two paths diverse in a goddamn woods. And Lori Lachlan's on one and Felicity Huffman's mm -hmm. on the other one. It just continues to underscore like that the way Felicity Huffman's statement was written, the way it's been handled, the performative. Because listen, the way you show up at court, the way you walk around, we know all of these things in America matter in the justice system, whether you like it or not. And now we're seeing what happens when you go the other way. And maybe that's why we find the story so fascinating, yeah. right? Because we do almost have this side-by-side. Uh, -side. We yeah. do almost have this it's like, like a split screen. Here's the way it's working. Absolutely. Well, listen, apparently there's going to be more news on this front on Friday. We will, of course, be keeping an eye on this story because it's fascinating. Keep pushing, Becky. <laughs> Take it to trial. Go to the stand. You should testify. Do it. Do you want? It, you want to see? You want to see some oh, of those? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> you want to see some it, of those courtrooms? Uh -huh. yes. We're rooting for you. We're rooting you do. for you. You wanted to go to trial. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's take it to the timeline for now. What is your craziest? It wasn't me. Story. Whether it was you or wasn't you, you know, just look like you. You know, the same place, the same time, whatever. <laughs> Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. All right. Well, all eyes yesterday, of course, were on Paris. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Hundreds of people gathered in the streets Monday night to sing Ave Maria while churches across the city rang their bells in unison in support of Notre Dame. It was really incredible, bewildering to see this unfold in real time on the timeline. Francis 24 reporter Charlie James became a huge part of the conversation. She joins us now from Paris. Good morning, Charlie. Hi guys, thanks for having me. Thank you. Listen, your coverage was really essential yesterday for people following along in real time. You brought clarity. Thank you so much. Um, you, of course, were at the scene. What was it like to be there in person? So I live pretty close to Notre Dame. So as soon as I heard the news, I ran over there. They were still, I hadn't cleared everyone off the island. So I was able to get very, very close to the cathedral. And just seeing it that close and the flames and the amount of smoke coming out of it, it was extremely surreal, just that something this important that has such a grand uh, importance in France could be burning right before your eyes like this. Uh, so the police then started moving us back. And, and then I was in a crowd with a group of people. And it was like the city just came to a standstill. So uh, Notre Dame is on an island uh, in the middle of Paris. And there's uh, just people surrounding the island and stopped. Uh, in the middle of the street, of uh, tourist boats stopped in the middle of the Seine, uh, just watching this unfold. And it was incredible how quickly it happened. When I first arrived, most of the roof was still there, the spire was still standing. And within about a half an hour, 45 minutes, it all came down. And, uh, you know, the crowd watching kind of the inevitable happen. I mean, we knew that, you know, with the lack of, uh, of firefighters on the scene at that time. There was no way that they were gonna be able to save this. And just as every piece started falling, gas, people saying, I can't believe this, um, oh my God. Uh, and it, just to, to watch it unfold. And it was really that moment when this fire came down that you just heard you know, gas people with their hands over their mouths um, all across uh, the island. Um, and eventually the police did move everyone off of the island, but. Last night, you know, people uh, also coming to pay respects, to sing, 
there was still an unknown sense of whether the uh, towers would be saved, whether the main structure would be saved. Um, thankfully, it does appear that they uh, will be, um, that the stone exterior will be saved. And the damage inside is quite extensive and, and a lot made of wood and we'll never be able to be restored. We'll never be able to re be restored. Charlie, we did want to show this video from Patrick Gailey of the moment Notre Dame's spire fell because it was just such a moment. Could you talk a little bit more about, there were relics inside. What was salvaged? We lost the spire, we lost the roof, we lost so much of the interior wood. What was salvaged? That was one of the big fears of when this fire broke out was because it's not only a beautiful building, a beautiful church, so important um, for Catholics, but it's also basically a museum. Um, there are relics, the, the crown of thorns, um, that Jesus is believed to have worn on his way to crucifixion, as well as um, nails from the cross and a piece of the cross. Um, so these are irreplaceable relics uh, that are important to people around the world. And there was a real fear uh, that maybe those would not get out. So it does turn out that they, they those are safe. They are now in one of the um, Hotel de Ville de um, Paris uh, city halls here. Um, so those are safe. But there were parts of the building itself uh, that are just as important in many ways, but couldn't be removed. So there's engravings, there's statues that are a part of the building, uh, the, the famous rafters, the stone, uh, the stained glass windows. Those are things that you can't go in and pull out. And so everyone is sitting there watching this unfold in real time and you know, praying, you know, not the windows, not the bell tower, uh, as you just are watching more and more go up in flames. Now, luckily, uh, you know, the, the top of the roof is really the only part that was completely destroyed as far as the exterior. There's some incredible photos from the inside now where you can see the, the, the amount of ash uh, that and charring that has happened on the inside. So I think the inside is actually going to be where um, the hardest part of the restoration is going to be. As we begin to think about uh, reconstruction, and of course, many people were sharing their own memories of, of, of trips to Paris, and I have lovely memories of, of, of getting to see Notre Dame myself. Could you speak about, like, it's not just a building, it's not just a church, it's also, it's, it's a cultural, national institution. Can you explain what it means to the city of Paris uh, and to France? Right, it's, it's, it's hard to explain exactly how important it is. For Americans, there isn't really an equivalent. It's almost as if you know, you were watching the White House burn. If the White House was also a church, uh, the the not just religious importance, it's the heart of uh, the uh, Catholic Church in France, of really the Catholic Church in Europe, it's so important. Um, but also just the role it plays in culture, in books, in music, in art, um, and it just regular life here in Paris. It is in the center. It is actually at the um, point zero in France, where all of distances are measured from. So it's truly the heart of the country. Uh, and you pass it so much in the city when you live here because um, the city revolves around it. There's a lot of metro stations around there as well. Um, so it's something that you pass on a regular basis. I pass it on my way to work. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people I see online and that I've spoken to saying, you know, we're not going to take this for granted anymore. We, we walk past these beautiful buildings living here in Paris every day, ancient buildings. Um, and, you know, you get a little bit immune to it. And then you realize how actually fragile these places are that mean so much uh, to French people, but to the world. Um, and so I think that for those of us who live here, it's also been eye-opening just that we, we really should not take the city and its wonders for granted. Absolutely. Mm. Almost, I believe, nine centuries of history. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Okay. And I think that's why you had the, just the outpouring on the timeline yesterday. Absolutely. Exactly what she's kind of talking about, because it wasn't just the country. It's not just the city. All around the world, so many people have a connection to this building. Absolutely. But of course, that wasn't the only part of the story. We also need to talk about the misinformation. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. As the Notre Dame Cathedral burned, online hoaxes, conspiracies, and coordinated disinformation campaigns also began to spread across social media. BuzzFeed News reporter Jane Litvinenko joins us now to talk about it. Jane, good morning. Good morning. Okay, so before we get into the specifics, 
Overall, how would you grade social media's effectiveness yesterday in dealing with these hoaxes and conspiracies? You know, uh, medium. Um, what we've seen is that uh, when there are pure fake accounts that pop up, like a fake CNN account or a fake Fox News account, those accounts are really quickly taken down. But when it comes to the more intricate misinformation and I would argue at times more damaging or more vast, the videos that, for example, are targeting Muslim people or uh, a lot of these Islamophobic disinformation remains still up across all platforms. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about some of the examples. And you, you, in your post for BuzzFeed noted, many, unfortunately, there are a lot of examples of hoaxes and conspiracy theories. Run us through a few of the more notable ones, though. Right. So we did have two different news accounts pretending to be uh, official sources, a CNN uh, fake account and a Fox News fake account. But those have since been taken down. What's more notable is that we've seen a giant outpouring of Islamophobia across social media networks. So we're talking videos with Allahu Akbar shouts uh, superimposed on them that are fake, that are spreading across the website. We're talking about the same message uh, targeting Muslim people, attempting to blame them for the fire spreading across social media. And of course, the officials haven't connected anything, uh, anything to um, a specific perpetrator. As far as we know, as of right now, uh, the cause of the fire is an accident. Okay. Well, um, here's a tweet from Charlie Warzel about that fake CNN tweet that you mentioned. He tweeted, uh, Twitter fixes it uh, after a huge surprise. A whole bunch of vigilant journalists like Jane Litvinenko make a lot of noise about it and the message spreads. Big tech often feels ganged up on by the press, but honestly, nothing other than this seems to bring about results and accountability. Uh, I agree, but here's my bigger question. Is this model of social media basically depending on journalists like you to work as content moderators, is it sustainable? Is this going to work in the long run? <laughs> well, I would say that we're in the long run. I've been doing threads like this, and we've been doing this type of reporting for years now, and it seems to be the same pattern every single time. You know, reporters point something out, and then the social media network reactively says, whoops, sorry, we'll take that down. But in terms of proactive approaches, uh, we just don't know what social media networks are doing, and if they are doing anything, whether it's successful. Okay, Jane, let me ask you, though, is it at least getting quicker? Because you did give them a medium grade. And it does seem like, I feel like we've been doing this show for almost two years now. We've talked about these big events and it seems like the conspiracy theories have had really long tails. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, it did seem like things were getting pulled and shut down pretty quickly. Yeah, they were. So the speed with which uh, the takedowns have happened has definitely improved. Whereas in the past, we've had to, you know, sort of cross our fingers and pray that something will get taken down. Now, uh, now social media networks seem to actively be monitoring either journalist feeds or social feeds overall. But that doesn't mean that everything is getting caught. Like I mentioned, the things that are obvious fakes that are just impersonating a news organization or what have you, those are getting taken down. But when it comes to the junk news, that other manipulated content, not only is it not getting taken down, it's not, it's, it's, it's being allowed to spread. It's an overwhelming wave. All right. Well, thank you so much as always, Jane, for talking with us and for being one of the people pointing out the fake news yesterday. You're always welcome. Absolutely. We have a tweet here that I wanted to read from Nichelle. You tweeted, keep that same energy for the black churches burned in Louisiana. And of mm -hmm. course, just a few weeks ago, uh, three black churches, one predominantly white church in Louisiana, were burned by someone who seemed to have spent time in the white nationalist deep web, whatever you want to call it. He was a uh, parish deputy's son. And I point that out not just because of your tweet, but what I thought was interesting with the misinformation is that uh, there were, you know, all of these hoaxes claiming that the cathedral in Paris was burned uh, by people attached to like, like Islam and, and, and that kind of terrorism. Not true at all. If you want to talk about terrorists burning down churches, that's happening right here in our own country. And of course, there was in fact a very long history of church bombings in cities like Birmingham, for example, and across the country that you can delve into actually if you want to talk about churches being under fire because of 
terrorism and white and, nationalism. And something we talked about on this show. Yeah, absolutely. It's there if you want to look for it, Don. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. sadness out there in absolutely. the world, for sure. Well, we've got a great show for you today. Lake Bell from Bless This Mess, I love the name of it, <laughs> is here, and Isaac talks about therapy. You, want, you go on Tuesdays. It's Tuesdays. It's your it's day. It's my therapy I on, day. I go on Thursdays, looking forward to it. Um, but up next, it's Fire Tweets. <laughs> All right, let's get into these fire tweets. The first one comes from Bennett. Yo, if you are not 18 years old yet, take full advantage of being that young and fight as many people as you possibly can. Great advice. Great advice. Absolutely. Go out swinging. Just go have some fun. Get into a few scraps. Nobody's going to sue you. I love it. Just have some, yeah? No? Not for you? No. Not your I'm advice? i let you do that. You read it. <laughs> Luis, you tweeted. Why the fuck do baby clothes have pockets? They don't even own shit. Okay. Back to my baby agenda. Back on my baby bullshit. Let me point. tell you. What? Yeah. What are they holding? I she, listen. I asked. I asked even the wrong people this morning trying to figure out like why. There's no reason. I there's mean, no reason, baby. What are you keeping Cheerios in there? What do you got in there? You got a little oh. milk? No, you don't. Because that's for the later. stuff that your parents gave you. Let no, them have no, it. no, absolutely not. Ladies' dresses needs pockets. Kids' stuff doesn't need any of that shit. Oh, Stop wasting cloth on babies. I didn't know this was something you were so passionate about. Yeah, I just about. don't like babies. Okay, wow. Okay. Well, uh, this next tweet comes from Yo Cavalli. <laughs> Panera sells overpriced hospital food, and everybody seems just to be okay with that. Where's the lie? This, I mean, this is really true. I hadn't thought about it until this tweet, but it's a pretty good point. I literally, when I read this tweet, like a memory of yeah. being in a Panera played through my head, uh -huh. and I was like, yep, that all matches up. It's like, it's like, yeah. Hospital food plus bread bowls. They do have bread bowls. They do? Panera. I didn't know Panera had Red Bulls. Yeah, absolutely. Red Bulls. Yeah, what'd you think I, I said? I thought you said Red Bulls. There we go. <laughs> Feeling frisky tweeting. Ha ha, no worries. Mm. Me, incredibly worried. Man. Mmm. That's, yeah. That's, 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 that's all you got it's on that. way of life. Yeah, that is exactly is how Tuesday, I feel. It is isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. Well, Tweet of the Day comes from Just Sally. I like it, Just Sally. You tweeted, I waved to a man because I thought he waved at me. Uh, apparently, he waved to another woman. So I got out of the way to get out of the awkward situation. I kept my hand up, and a taxi pulled over and drove me to the airport. I am now in Poland starting a new life. Oh, how is your new life? You just got to commit to it, Sally. I get it. Do you enjoy it? Sure. You, you have fun in Poland? Poland is lovely. Yeah, you history. A lot of, <laughs> of things, culture. I don't know. Take it in. Coming up, I <laughs> sit down with actor Lake Bell from Bless This Mess. But up next, we're going to a different mess live from the district. Mm. Welcome back. We're going live from the district. Here's a tweet from Zoe Tillman. The Justice Department plans to publicly release the redacted version of special counsel Robert Mueller's report on Thursday morning. And an Emma Luke tweeted, we were just two days away from the Mueller report coming out on 420. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> Joining us now is BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Emma Loop. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. Okay, so what should we be most prepared for when the Mueller report drops on Thursday? I think you should definitely be prepared for some redactions. There are going to be four types of redactions. Uh, some pertaining to grand jury material, ongoing investigations, sources and methods, and kind of these peripheral third-party characters who might have kind of personal information about them in the report. So there are going to be four types of redactions that will be included in this report. And uh, I think we're going to see a lot of kind of those big black spaces throughout the report of where this material has been redacted. Right. Um, so four different types of redactions. Here's my question, because um, will the different types of redactions be identified? Um, for example, I totally understand that there are details in the 400-page report that, listen, it involves like ongoing witnesses, ongoing investigations, that it's not a good idea for, the, you know, for all of us to know that. But people are reasonably suspicious of William Barr. So will we be able to differentiate behind, um, oh, this section is out because William Barr didn't want it, and this section is out because it involves like an ongoing investigation? So what Barr has publicly told Congress is that each of those types of redactions will be identified with, I believe, color-coded uh, redactions. And so different sections will be identified by their redactions. You'll be able to tell basically 
why a certain section was redacted. Good to know. That is very good to know. I was, I'm like proud of Less you. I'm proud of you getting a little conspiracy theory. You're being like, but what type of redactions are we talking about? Because that's what I'm thinking about too. Like for me, it's like, how serious, like one, is there going to be an unredacted version in a couple of weeks, months? Will one be leaked? Emma, for those that don't know, like why are these redactions important? Because myself, just as a citizen, I'm just like, release the whole thing. Right. So I think that there are a lot of Democrats in Congress who want the whole thing and they've been fighting to get the whole thing, particularly those on the Intelligence Committee. They argue that as part of their oversight duties on the Intelligence Committee, they need to see the underlying evidence in the unredacted report, uh, whether it relates to counterintelligence issues or whatnot. They want to see the full thing. And so they're still fighting for Congress to get access to the full unredacted report. That would be, if they managed to get it, it would be given to them. Whether it ever comes out publicly is a whole other question. Um, I don't believe that a whole unredacted report is going to be made public anytime soon, uh, especially because some of those redactions pertain to sources and methods, ongoing investigations, et cetera, things that you know will take a long time to be in a position to be made public. And so I don't think we, the public, are going to see any of that unredacted material anytime soon, but Congress might. And of course, there's always the possibility with Congress that it could leak. But generally, the intelligence committees, when they get this kind of sensitive material, they're not supposed to release it. And so I think uh, we shall see, but uh, I don't think the public officially is going to see any of this anytime soon. Interesting. Um, one more question. As I understand it, I think Congress is about to have a break. Easter is is coming up. Um, the White House has benefited already from having this like extended kind of grace period where they've been able to control the narrative without the actual report being made available. So how is this going to play out for Congress? So Congress is already on break because of Easter and whatnot. They're actually gone for this week on recess or state work period. So they're back home in their districts doing work there. Uh, So Congress is not in this week. Senators and House members are not around for us to track them down and ask them tough questions about what is in the report and what is not in the report. Obviously, they're all going to be putting out nicely crafted statements when this thing actually is made public. But it's going to be a little bit more difficult for us reporters to track them down and ask them those those tougher questions. So weird. It, it feels like the, the duration of the Mueller report investigation has been like a roller coaster. It's been fast and highs and lows. And then now it's just been like slowly grinding into the station. Uh, well, Emma, thank you for the update. Thanks for having me. Could you imagine having as many breaks as Congress gets? No, I can't. <laughs> All right, here's a tweet <laughs> from BuzzFeed News. Twitter left up tweets threatening Representative Ilhan Omar's life over the weekend so law enforcement could investigate them. BuzzFeed News has learned. Joining us now to talk about this story is BuzzFeed News senior technology reporter Alice Kentrowitz. He joins us from San Francisco. Good morning. Morning, gentlemen. What kind of fucked up fake library are you in? What is that? This is a real library, and I've read every book in it. Stand by that. <laughs> okay, a scammer. All right, well, this section especially is really, really enriching. Really, we're not even talking about your brilliant tie. What tie? You dress that way at like nine a.m. in the morning? That's right. I wear this tie into my library. It's the only way to read. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, let's talk about the story with Representative Ilhan Omar. Of course, it's it's still developing. The president is still being asked about it, and she's still commenting on it, of course. But what was Twitter's goal in leaving these death threats up on the timeline for investigators? Look, it's a crime to threaten the life of a federal official. Um, and so everybody who's written um, the death threats in this situation uh, is, you know, potentially in violation of that law. And so instead of deleting those tweets, Twitter's left them up, giving um, giving law enforcement a chance to screenshot it and then potentially take a look at the context and who's making these threats. OK, what is Twitter's usual procedure here? And is it safe to say that they are working hand in hand with law enforcement, at least on these death threats? Well, Twitter's usual procedure is when it sees a death threat, it deletes it. Um, and that has some people in Washington wondering whether that's the right approach or not, because when you delete a death threat, uh, you start to give people this kind of leeway where they're able to make the death threats, but 
you know, know that they'll probably disappear before law enforcement gets their hands on them, leading them to make more death threats. So it really is a question of what the platform incentivizes. Is Twitter working with um, law enforcement on this one? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know conclusively, um, but I do know that, uh, you know, Capitol Hill police are investigating. Um, and that's something, uh, you know, that Twitter, you know, by keeping these threats up is, is assisting with in some way. Um, something interesting happened on the timeline this morning. I, I shared your story. Uh, I shared your story about Representative Ilhan Omar, and I saw someone reply to the tweet saying, "Well, hey, I've been seeing rape threats against Representative Ale Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Why aren't those being treated as seriously as death threats?" Right? So it just poses like a really interesting example of like how is this working out? So is there a precedent for this? Has Twitter even explained like the bright line where they say, "Okay, now we're going to treat this differently than other very disturbing serious threats?" You know, it's really hard to say. Actually, as you dig into the service, uh, you see threats of all kinds. So the fact that um, there are threats against AOCs, you know, unfortunately, not surprising. Um, if you look at the threats against Omar, they've been taking place uh, at least since December. Uh, so it just seems to be a, a function of the way that Twitter built its platform. Um, and, and, and again, like, I kind of think that we're dealing with the, the outputs of Twitter's platform, what, it, what, um, what the thing spits out. Uh, and, I, and I really do think that uh, there should be more focus uh, paid on, on what the fundamentals are that are causing stuff like this to happen inside of it. Like a lot of people say that social media mirrors human nature, um, but humans don't, you know, walk down the street and, you know, threaten each other's lives like this. So what about Twitter um, is incentivizing this stuff? And then what can, uh, what can it do to try to tamp it down? I think that's, that's the real question to be asking. That's absolutely the question at the heart of it, Alex. I'm glad you said it because I was wondering, is this something we can trust Twitter with. You have been reporting on this company for so long. You've been reporting on social media for so long. Do you think these companies are getting better or does something else really need to happen? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think as I hinted at the bottom of my article, it's been 13 years since Twitter's been uh, live in action. And the fact that it doesn't have a solution to this is a pretty big problem um, from my perspective. So uh, no, I don't think we can trust the platform to fix it because it would require a rethinking of its fundamentals that they've been talking about pretty much since the moment Jack Dorsey stepped in as CEO uh, and haven't made much progress on, given the fact that we're seeing all these threats continue to, to rise with relative impunity today. So unfortunately, it's kind of a sad state of affairs in social media right now where there's a lot of uh, pledge to change from all the platforms and really little action. Very little action. Well, Alex, thank you so much for your reporting. Thanks for joining us this morning. Any chance you'll just rip that library down for us real quick so we can see what's behind it? Yeah, yeah, hang on one second. I can't believe you went for oh it. Oh my God. Another library. <laughs> <laughs> All right, get the heck out of here. Just for the record, that was completely unscripted. I have no idea, I don't dare ask what's behind that sheet. It's gonna be another one. Thank you so much for joining us. See you later. <laughs> later on. I think he just lives in a bunch of sheets. <laughs> Up next, Is it a curtain? I speak with Lori Gottlieb <laughs> about her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It's going to be about therapy. Stay tuned. My Lord. What, I thought it was maybe a bathroom curtain, like I a shower. it's going to be a window. <laughs> Here's a tweet from Lydia. My friend drunk texted her therapist and asked him why he doesn't open up to her like she does to him. Sounds like something I would do. Lori Gottlieb, psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a therapist, her therapist, and Our Lives Revealed, joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so your new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is based on your experiences as a therapist, who sought your own therapy after a bad breakup. Why did you want to write about such a tough time in your personal life? You know, I originally wanted to bring people into the therapy room to see what goes on there with my patients. I thought that they would see themselves in those stories. But then I realized that I really wanted to show that I'm not that different from anybody else, that therapists are really just another patient, basically. So I become the fifth patient. And I just want to show that we're all more the same than we are different. It's not, you know, I think there's this trope of sort of like the therapist who's a train wreck. 
Um, and that's not at all what this is. It's just very much that we all have struggles and we all have, uh, you know, a hard time sometimes getting through them. We all have a hard time getting through that. And I think that is important to know as like a therapist, our humans too. Uh, I just started going to therapy myself. Do you have any advice for how to get the most out of it? I think that you have to, when you leave the therapy room, you have to make changes. So I think a lot of people come to therapy and they think I'll dump all my problems there and then I'll leave. But we always say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, that you can have all the insight in the world. But if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So you may know why you're having problems in your relationship. But if you go home and you do the same exact thing in your relationship, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. That's really interesting. What are some steps that people can take to kind of take the lessons they learn in therapy out into the real world? Well, I think the first thing is to, to look at yourself because a lot of people come in and they want to change other people. You know, they come in and they say, help me to change my partner or my child or my parent. And what I want to focus on is the things that they can do differently out in the world. So when they, when they want to change, it's about what can you do differently as opposed to getting other people to do things differently. What in, can you change in yourself? Uh, if somebody's looking for a therapist, if somebody's thinking about going on the kind of same journey that you yourself go on in the book, uh, how do you know when you find the person that's the right fit for you? That's a really important question because the most important factor in the success of your therapy is actually the relationship that you have with your therapist, more than what their training is or the modality they use or their years of experience, even though all of those things are important. So um, I think if you go in for a first session and you feel like the therapist understood you and that the person was easy to talk to, then I would go back for a second session. If you didn't feel that way, you might want to look around. You might want to look around. What about yourself and your own personal story? How, how did you know when it really clicked? Um, so when I went, I was asking, you know, for a friend, um, and I, I asked one of my colleagues for a referral. I later told her it was for me, but, um, I, I knew it clicked because my therapist was very, um, himself in the room. He wasn't, um, you know, he, he when in our training, we learn a certain way of being, I think. And he was just so comfortable in the room and brought his personality in the room and didn't act like what we think of as the stereotype of a therapist. And so I knew that I was dealing with a real human being and he's kind of quirky and unconventional. And that really um, made me feel comfortable. And like he was someone that I would want to uh, get his feedback from. And, and get personal with, in general, I, I speak for myself here. I was one of those people that for a very long time kind of shied away from therapy, maybe even had a fear of it. Do you think therapy is for everyone? And if so, why? I don't think everyone needs to be in therapy, but I think most people can benefit from therapy. A therapist will hold up a mirror to you and help you to see yourself in ways that you aren't normally seen. So I talk about in the book, the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion and idiot compassion is what our friends will do for us. They take our side. Yeah, your boss is a jerk, even though you might have ended up in that situation 10 other times. Um, you know, they always kind of back you up in that way. A therapist isn't there to give you validation. They're there to help you to see something about the way you relate to yourself and the way you relate to other people. And so many people have blind spots and they keep shooting themselves in the foot over and over and end up in the same place. And a therapist will help you to see those patterns so that you can go through the world and navigate your, your days more smoothly in the long term, not just in the moment or what the crisis of the week is. Not what the crisis of the week is. Uh, one last question before we let you go. Congratulations on this. The book is being developed into a TV show with Eva Longoria. Is there anything you can tell us about how it's going to play out? Well, it's really going to be a show about a person who happens to be a therapist as opposed to a show about therapy. Um, which I really like because I think so many times in t on television, you know, the therapist is is every stereotype that we think of when we think of therapy. And this is just going to be a normal person like in the book who happens to be a therapist and it will show her world like we do in the book where, um, you know, what happens in that office place, all the kind of behind the scenes of a therapist's life. All right. Well, thank you so much. And again, congratulations on the book. Congratulations on the TV show. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Maybe You Should See Someone is available now wherever books are sold. I'm actually going to therapy later today, like Saeed mentioned. So let's take it to the timeline. 
If you're in therapy, what's the biggest thing you've learned from your therapist? Share it with everyone, a little free therapy for everybody. Up next, we're explaining why every Tuesday, you wish the week was already over. Katie Heaney, health writer for The Cut, tweeted, once again, it is only Tuesday. Yeah, I feel that, Katie. Well, Katie joins me now to help us understand why Tuesdays seem to be the worst day of the week. Katie, uh, happy Tuesday, I guess? (laughs) Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so basically what I set out to figure out is like why we all seem to have this dread and... um, these very heavy feelings about Tuesday, why it seems to last forever, why it's always such a surprise, even though the week works the same order every time, it's still always shocking to realize it's only Tuesday. Um, So I got in touch with this psychologist who studies the perception of time, um, which, you know, I'm always surprised to find what fields people can specialize in, um, in academia. And um, she told me that a lot of it has to do with how we feel about Mondays Um, and because Mondays are usually so busy and so stressful, we kind of have a time hangover of sorts on Tuesdays. That is so fascinating that you actually, there, like you said, there are people that look into this, that study this and it makes sense, right? Do you think there's any other reason why Tuesdays just seem to last so long and they seem in particular so far away from the weekend? Yeah, I think because... Well, they're not yet halfway into the work week. So when we get to midday Wednesday, we're at least able to say, okay, we're halfway home now. Um, And they also don't have, I mean, Mondays aren't great, but Mondays have the benefit of a sort of resignation to, okay, I have to go back. Like I knew the weekend wouldn't last forever. And so I'll go back and do all the things that I probably should have got done on Friday. And Tuesday doesn't really have any of those associations. It's just a day that is in the beginning, not the middle. There's nothing to look forward to. Um, It's just sort of a drag. It is such a drag. My day's already dragging. Can't you tell? We love work. Just kidding. I love working here at BuzzFeed. (laughs) Do you think this feeling gets worse as we get older, as we just march through week after week of working? Is it getting worse for you? (laughs) I don't think it gets better, unfortunately, except for maybe when you retire and then you don't have those associations with Tuesday anymore. Um, I think that, you know, we know from research in this area that older people do say and perceive time as going faster and faster every year. Um, Often the, the marker that they use for that is Christmas. So Christmas comes sooner every year. Um, and in my piece, I sort of compared this, the Tuesday of the year to February where even though it's technically the shortest month, it often drags on because there's no sort of, well, there's usually not any time off from work that month. There's no, it just doesn't have the same anticipation or excitement associated with it. Um, And so I think that in the sense that time in general passes quicker and quicker as we get older, the Tuesday problem main, main, maybe only gets worse (laughs) because um, the good parts go by faster and then we're all of a sudden back at a Tuesday again. Oh, that's so true. I feel like February and March just drag on and on and on. But Dr. Ogden gave you some tips for what we can do if we are sitting in the middle of your Tuesday, if you're watching this and you're just like, oh my God, how is it only 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday? What tips did she give you? So she said more broadly that... um, her research and research of her colleagues has shown that mindfulness helps people perceive time as moving more slowly. Um, I kind of balked at this response because I never know what anyone means by mindfulness. I don't really want to get into it. I don't like, I I told her I'd rather have a million Tuesdays in a row than ever meditate. So (laughs) that's not going to happen for me personally, but, um, Basically, she said that's sort of shorthand for things that you can do to help you relax. So whether that's deep breathing exercises or having maybe a certain playlist that puts you at ease, um, you know, planning something nice for yourself on a Tuesday, all those things can help. She also suggested um, sort of rebranding Tuesdays as a day where you do have something to look forward to. Um, Shortly after writing this piece, I 
decided to have on a Tuesday, a friend come over and play Mario Kart with me and order dinner. <laughs> and like, it's very simple, but it just was like, I have something to look forward to, to get through the day and like a good thing on a Tuesday. And um, that helped a lot more than I expected. That is a great idea. Let's rebrand Tuesday. I feel like people are always treating themselves on Friday, but why not a Tuesday, right? Well, Katie, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's take this to the timeline. What's something you do to get through the worst day of the week? I know when I'm really dragging at work, my best advice is just taking a walk around the block, just getting out into the sunshine or the cold or whatever, just getting out of the office. (laughs) Let us know using the hashtag AMCDM and don't go away. Up next, Isaac is sitting down with the star of Bless This Mess, Lake Bell. Welcome back. I am so excited to be joined by actor, writer, director, Lake Bell. You know her from In a World, It's Complicated, and so much more because you like to work. How are you this morning? I do. I, I feel good. I feel good. My show's coming out tonight. I'm super jazzed. Your show's coming out tonight. It's called Bless This Mess. Yeah. I'm so excited about it. It's about a city girl that kind of moves to Nebraska. A, a, a newlywed couple. A newlywed couple. Yeah, Dax kind Shepard. of like quasi-hipster types who decide to kind of like you know, throw, like unplug their iPhones and just like reconnect to nature, you know, get, you know, start like, you know, working from the land, you know, and they think they got it. You know what I mean? How's that work out for them? How's that work out for them? (laughs) Well, they wanted simpler, but it gets far more complicated. So far more complicated. I'm not plugging an old movie that I used to be in called It's Complicated, (laughs) but I was also in it. You absolutely were. (laughs) Um, Did this come, this idea for this story kind of come from a dream you maybe actually have in real life? Look, I mean, make no mistake I, I my husband and I totally dream about this and when I sat down with Elizabeth Merriweather who we co-created the show together you know we really you know I admitted to her I was like I feel like this is a real feeling for me like I don't know if I could actually fend for myself but um you know I like chickens you know <laughs> I feel like farm fresh eggs sign me up you know <laughs> and um you know I think I you know on Pinterest and on Instagram like I follow all these people that are kind of like you know, Brooklynites turned farmers, you know, and I, 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 I like this idea. And it's it's kind of a zeitgeist, right? We kind of are dreaming of this thing. Do you ever uh, feel like that? hundred percent. I want to throw on the overalls, get out there, yeah, work overalls. with my hands. Dax Abs- Shepard, he loves overalls. You- tell you something. I'm going to let you in and tell you that this man is not even wearing those. Ironically, he's like <laughs> one of the great overall wearers of our time. Does he look, re- he looks real good in them. Look, Ever since In a World, like, I've been rocking overalls, okay? I love it. I love them. But, like, he just, he shows me up. Like, he just comes in, coming in hot with the overalls. It just really fits. He, obviously, married to Kristen Bell in real life. another Bell. Well, I was going to ask. No relation. No relation. But, you know, ding dong. He did it again. (laughs) (laughs) What's it like to step into that role with him? Uh, As people are obsessed with their relationship. I, I, look, I love... I love Dak Shepard. When when Liz Merriweather and I, and by the way, I'm saying Liz Merriweather, I, you know that's the new girl. Yeah, she's so creating yeah, a new girl, awesome. of course. And she she and I, when we were writing the show, we always used him as like a template. Because when you're writing, it's like you can cast anyone you want. You can be like, Brad Pitt is the waiter at this restaurant. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so like we put Dak Shepard in there and then when, of course, it came time to kind of offer it, we were like, let's go for gold. Let's go for the, the, the highest. The dream. The dream. You really. F- and then we got him. What, what did that feel like in that moment? Like, how'd you, how'd you find out who's going to. It was so great. Cause like, I, I, I will admit, I see, I would see Dax. Um, we're both, we both have like little kids mm-hmm. and we would see each other at our daughter's preschool. We both have daughters at the same preschool at the time. And I'd be like, we'd be like cool drop-off parents You're like, hey, what's up? You're an actor. I see you're an actor too. You like give you each other the nod. Your... Yeah, like yeah, what's yeah, up? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's like people with tattoos, right? Yeah, yeah. You like nod to them. Uh-huh. By the way, I nod to people with tattoos and I don't have any tattoos, but it's because I'm married to a man covered in tattoos. Well, you ha- you have a couple of tattoos. I too. Hang on, hang on. Get back to the Dax stuff and then right, I'm going to I'm gonna bye, grill bye, you on bye, the bye. tattoos. But the point is, you know, Dax and I, you know, we were very... We were friends from afar, you know. I he likes cars. I, you know, he's a big motorhead. I used to write a car column. My dad's, my dad owns race car tracks. Like I was like, oh, I'll talk cars with this guy, you know. <laughs> um, so then when the, it came to you know send him the show, I was like, I have a business discussion with you. This has nothing to do with what kind of car seat <laughs> your child has for your minivan. 
you know, so it was like, it was, it was groovy. Like he, I like the idea that this was like a long con. Oh yeah. You were like, I became friends. I was like, I had to get into that preschool. (laughs) (laughs) Like I had to, it was a real, you know. I love it. But uh, your man, uh, just famous tattoo artist, beloved, beloved. You actually have two tattoos. Yeah. Like I, I did not have any tattoos and then, you know, went and married a famous tattoo artist. (laughs) And after I had kids too, I was kind of like, you know, before I didn't have any and I thought it was kind of a big deal to get a tattoo. You know, you get nervous about it. Um, And then, you know, you kind of birth humanity, like life, and you're like, ah, doesn't really matter. Let's do this. Um, so wow, that's amazing. That's the I moment have, for you. You're like, I wish I could show them. We actually you. have a picture. Okay, we can you bring don't it up. want me to take my clothes. Off. I mean, do you? <laughs> no, but there but they there are. But there it is. Yeah. Okay. So, but th- that those these sort of like little armor shields have both my 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 son and my daughter's name on the in, embedded in embedded sort of work in them. There. That's so yeah. beautiful. And they are beautiful. And I was like, you know how it is. Like when you go and you go do whatever you want to a tattoo artist, and then. But then you have feedback, right? Mm-hmm. But I knew about that because, you know, when our pillow talk, he sort of comes home and he talks about his clients who say, oh, the guy said, do whatever you want. But then he's like telling me how big, how small, he makes me redraw it, like, you know, all the stuff. He's so, like, actually, what I wanted is to look exactly like this image that I brought in with myself. Exactly. Not and respecting the artist. I know. And then, and then on top of it, you know, people start complaining about the pain, like, <laughs> we all know what we were getting into when you're getting a tattoo. It's not going to feel good. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, so when I went in, I was like, do whatever you want. And I'm like a very visual person. I have a lot of opinions. But like, I had to be like, I'm going to be the dopest client ever. I First of all, I had to call to make an appointment because he's very he's what? very booked up. Hang on, hang on. First off, that's a lot of trust. But second off, you had to book an appointment co- with your husband <laughs> when you were married. He's a busy guy. To get the tattoos. <laughs> Of your kids' names. Yeah, I wanted the real experience, to be honest. Oh. I wanted to, like, experience. You know, I don't have any. I never never experienced it. You really have. I wanted to be, like, call up and, like, make an appointment and say, you know, I would like to get some tattoos, please. <laughs> Can you put the tattoos on me? And so I, he, like, you know, he you drew did- it up, and I had to, like, wait there and see what he was going to do, put them on, and I look in the mirror, right? Uh-huh, the, uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and then I go, oh, that looks great. And I was so cool. Oh. You didn't want special like treatment. Like my coolest moment, yeah. I just was like. And you were like, go for it. I was like, I'm ready. Then how about the pain? How do- oh, I was like, zip. I don't care. I was like, I birthed two babies. I'm like, I am not saying a word. Yes. And um, I felt really proud. That's, did he, yeah. that night, was he like, I had a great client today. Well, he was very chill. <laughs> and then I was like, are you going to give me mad props? You know, like, and then he gave me mad props. You were like, I did so great. Okay, so tattoos, mother, incredible work, uh, bless his mess. <laughs> Also, though, so much voiceover work. You yes. were you had a, a role in Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse, which I yeah, loved. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, it's funny. It's like at this, I made in a world, and because I was, I am still obsessed with the idea of voiceover acting and being anyone. You know, it's like it's without the judgment of what you look like. You're mm. behind the cloak of this voice and this character. And you know, I also do Harley Quinn. I do um, uh, Poison Ivy um, on that series that's coming out and. Um, Secret Life of Pets. I play <laughs> Chloe the cat. Um, and yeah, in Spider-Verse, I, you know, little stuff. But now people call me up. Like Rodney Rothman had called me just to be like, hey, can you come and do a couple of like little characters in, in Spider-Verse? I was like, yeah, let's do this. You were like, absolutely. So now I'm like in there. <laughs> Are you really excited about it? Like, is that, is that one of the places you'd like to see your career continue to grow? I love it so much. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I continue to do it. I was the first uh, female voice for the iPhone um, in the commercials. They never had a female voice um, for, and that was really cool because In a World was all about like, gosh, why aren't there female voices? Because it's all, ma- in a, yeah. Yeah, so, so that was very groovy. Um, that was Probably one of the, my favorite highlight points. I can career. imagine because you're yeah. being a pioneer. That is absolutely like incredible. Yeah. Just one last question before I let you go. Okay. Nebraska, their state, their like <laughs> motto is the coolest motto ever. Yeah, Rem- so, remind it. So okay, so the it used to be Nebraska, the good life, and so these guys with the amazing sense of humor that they have, it's now Nebraska. Honestly, comma, it's not for everyone. <laughs> Which like, is amazing, but you went recently. The is it for you? Oh, it was great. The second I got out of the um, the plane, I just noticed immediately, like, everyone's like, good morning, hello. And it wasn't like, oh, I've seen you in, you know, Children's Hospital. They were definitely like, <laughs> you know, they just were like, good morning, because it's morning and good, you know? And so it <laughs> And was you're just, a human, and I'm going to be nice yeah, to you. Yeah, it was just like a real generosity of spirit, and just, it was so lovely and tr- totally refreshing. So... 
I have great things to say about Nebraska and the Midwest, and I feel like, why not? Let's put them like on the map a bit, yeah. and this show is kind of a love letter to It's kind of doing that. Well, go yeah. Huskers. Well, thank you so much go Huskers. for joining me this morning. That was absolutely delightful. Bless right. This Mess premieres tonight at 9.30 on ABC, and up next, we're reading more of your tweets. Tweets. I love it. All right, so we wanted to know about your craziest, it wasn't me story. It wasn't me, it wasn't me. Mm. Uh, Meg says, I-, I climbed out of my bedroom window and in the process tore my curtains out of the wall. I had to walk around the side of the house and walk in the door to face my parents and then be like, weird, right? Heard something fall. What's going on? <laughs> I, unlike Lori Lachlan, was a small child. Ah. I love that. Weird, right? <laughs> you, just, you, you, you would do that when you were a kid. I, at least I know I would. Would you? Yeah, where you'd just be like, I wonder what happened. <laughs> and like, your parents are, du- they're like, we know it was you. We absolutely know it was I, you. When I was a kid and do stuff like that, I would just disappear. I wouldn't like show up and like try to excuse. They'd just be like, where is Saeed? And it was because I'd done something. <laughs> there's like, like, there's crayon on the wall and Saeed has moved gone. to just Poland. You won't find me. Katie says, literally read this tweet, identified mine and was like, oh no, push that right back down. Suppress that mess. I will now be leaving. See, she's like, hey. She's like, she's out my mouth. Run out of here. She's out. Can't get caught if you're not caught. <laughs> I love it. Well, we asked you what was the biggest thing you've learned in therapy. And friend, something really funny and delightful has been going on in our mentions. Friend of the show, Soledad O'Brien replies, um, I didn't learn anything in therapy, but a friend once said, if a fight breaks out in every bar you are going to, it might be you. I put that. Tiku. I want that quote on That's a t-shirt. You get Lori got me up applied. It was real. We're having a whole. I'm that like, is the tea is being served, children. I now know what I'm going to talk about in my therapist appointment today, <laughs> this afternoon. That's also, I just want to ask you real quick. You want to go get tattoos after this oh, with that Lake gosh. Bell conversation? It was so. I wonderful. loved her tattoos. I was actually looking in the control room and I saw her. Her kids' names are uh, Nova and Ozzy. So it's like really so they're beautiful. And I I hadn't seen. That kind of... It, I thought was it was dope. absolutely wonderful. Dope. Well, thank you, of course, to our guests, Charlie James, Jane Lipinenko, Emma Loop, Alex Kandrowicz, Lori Gottlieb, Stephanie McNeil, Katie Haney, and Lake Bell. That was a great conversation. She was really selling Nebraska. Yeah. Uh, we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. <laughs> <laughs>